0: fire of God and breath of God, strength of God and truth of God, love of God and spirit of God, we have sung to you. It is our prayer. Transform these words into fiery reality within our lives. That it might be the face of Jesus that is seen in this reflection, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take a quiz this morning. I love quizzes, especially when I get to administer them. This is a simple quiz. It's one of these true and false specials. You know, true and false quizzes are a piece of cake. Unless, of course, you happen to have gotten a cunning professor who has mastered the art of transforming those simple little quizzes into GPA landmines. And you can do it. I remember in graduate school here. Some of them are still around. And so you know what I mean. But let's let's take a nickel quiz. You know, that means five questions. A nickel quiz. Jot the answers down. We'll get to the answers a little bit later. Let's put them up on the screen. Our nickel quiz for today. True or false? All right. Number one, true or False. It was God's will for Israel to wander 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. But don't answer, please, please. <laughs> you'll, you'll break the curve and everybody will get it right. Now, come on. Alright, question number two. True or false? The reason Israel wandered for 40 years was because of their unbelief, backsliding, and apostasy. Question number three. True or false? It has been God's will... For spiritual Israel to wander the last century and a half, thus delaying their entrance into the heavenly promised land. Question number four. True or false? The reason spiritual Israel has wandered for the last century and a half is because of their unbelief, backsliding, and apostasy. Nickel quiz. Question number five. True or false? In both cases, God had to wait for a new generation before leading them into the promised land. In the summer of 1943, an author named Meade McGuire wrote a series of articles that appeared in a magazine called The Review and Herald. Maybe you've heard of that magazine. The summer of 1943, as all of you over the age of 57 remember, found our world caught once again in the grip of global war, World War II. And let's face it, in times of national or global crisis, it is only natural for the heart to begin to earnestly ponder its relationship with the God of the universe, even our corporate relationship. And so, Meade McGuire is no exception. He writes a series of articles. Now, a friend of mine drew my attention to these articles because the theme of the articles was, back in 1943, the latter rain. And he knew that our theme is, this, is a similar theme in this season, only we're calling it the second coming of the Holy Spirit. What's very, very intriguing is that in one of these articles, McGuire has located a certain quotation, some statements. He has pondered those statements and then he makes a prediction. And I want you to catch this prediction. Let's put, it's just one sentence from his article. Let's put his prediction up here on the screen. Mean McGuire is writing, If the full significance of these statements should penetrate the minds and hearts of God's people, it would surely bring a mighty awakening and revival. End quote. Now, I've got to tell you, I have seen that quotation. I have read those statements. And I believe with all my heart that in fact, Mead McGuire's prediction is absolutely true. How did he put it here? If the full significance of these statements should penetrate the minds and hearts of God's people, it would surely bring a mighty awakening and revival. What I'd like to do for the next few moments is you and I together, let's, let's ponder those statements. It's a very short passage. It's from that apocalyptic classic called The Great Controversy. Have you heard of that book, The Great Controversy? I've noticed a number of you taking notes in this particular series, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm going to give you the page numbers. You'll see the references on the screen as well. This is from that book, Great Controversy, pages 457 and 458. I want you to read what McGuire says would cause an awakening and a revival if we comprehended what is stated here. Let's go to the screen. The Great Controversy, page 457-458. The history of ancient Israel is a striking illustration of the past experience of the Adventist body. Now, that capital A Adventist means a particular people who bore the name. As the next sentence notes, however, there were also people, little A Adventists, who were a part of this sweeping movement that swept, actually raced up and down the eastern seaboard uh, a century and a half ago. Let me read that, begin again. The history of ancient Israel is a striking illustration of the past experience of the Adventist body. God led his people in the Advent, little a, Advent movement, even as he led the children of Israel from Egypt. In the Great Disappointment. Now hold it right there, the Great Disappointment. Are you acquainted with that? You remember a Baptist farmer turned preacher named, what was his name? William, William Miller. You remember him? William Miller, who after 13 years of intense Bible study, by the way, with the King James Version and the, and Cruden's Concordance, came to the conviction that, in fact, the world was going to end. The world was going to end soon. And eventually, as he moved into the 1840s, he settled on a date. October 22, 18... What was the year? 1844. Now, in the Great Disappointment, that's speaking of that, uh, that uh, cross-denominational revival by the way, don't you think it's some little thing that happened, that happened off in the corner somewhere? You go to Boston today and you will see a plaque where the Millerite movement erected a 3,000 seat auditorium in the heart of Boston. This is 2,000 right here. 3,000, another 1,000. It was not a little backwoods moment. It was a revival. Now, in the great disappointment, their faith was tested as was that of the Hebrews at the Red Sea had they still trusted to the guiding hand that had been with them in their past experience, they would have seen the salvation of God. If all who had labored unitedly in the work In 1844, if they had received the third angel's message, well, what in the world is that? That's Revelation chapter 14. That's the everlasting gospel, the very good news of Christ. If they had received the third angel's message and had proclaimed it in the power of the Holy Spirit, our winter theme, the Holy Spirit, all right, the Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. A flood of light would have been shed upon the world. Years ago, the inhabitants of the earth would have been warned. And that was written, by the way, in the late 1880s years ago the closing work would have been completed and i put the emphasis here christ would have come for the redemption of his people years ago one more one more line here it was not the will of god that israel should wander 40 years in the wilderness he desired to lead them directly to the land of canaan and establish them there a holy happy people but quoting hebrews 3:19 they could not enter in because of unbelief now look Because of their backsliding and apostasy, they perished in the desert and others were raised up to enter the promised land. In like manner, it was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be so long delayed and His people should remain so many years in this world of sin and sorrow. But unbelief separated them from God. As they refused to do the work which He had appointed them, others were raised up to proclaim the message One last sentence. In mercy to the world, Jesus delays, present tense, His coming, that sinners may have the opportunity, an opportunity to hear the warning and find in Him a shelter before the wrath of God shall be poured out. End quote. Can you understand now why McGuire gets a hold of this? He said, wait a minute. Wait, Wait a minute. You mean Christ could have come before this? You know, I wonder if it sank into our corporate psyche. I don't know. Maybe McGuire is right. Let's let's go back to that McGuire sentence. If the full significance of these statements should penetrate the minds and hearts of God's people, it would surely bring a mighty awakening and revival. Notice the next sentence. The very fact that Jesus wanted to come and would have come 50 or more, why don't we just put in there, a hundred or more years ago, had we been ready, should startle and arouse us. We might be thrilled with the glory of our Savior's presence. We could be there now, rejoicing with the redeemed in peace and joy and victory of heaven, but for our own neglect. Now look it, ladies and gentlemen, that, that 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 is pretty punchy stuff. Maguire is saying, it could have been. Because he found this little apocalyptic statement. You know, all this time we thought that God was waiting for the sinners out there. And it turns out that He's been waiting for the sinners in here. In mercy He has not come. One more sentence. It's the same sentence we read a moment ago. Let's put it back up. It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be so long delayed and His people should remain so many years in this world of sin and sorrow. I want to tell you something. On Monday, 11 o'clock, in this church... I'm going to officiate at the service, a funeral service, for a four-month-old baby girl. You look at her. She is absolutely perfect and precious, but something couldn't be fixed inside. It was not God's will that we should remain so long in this veil of sorrow and tears. I know. I know it's not very politically correct to make this statement That for a century and a half, it has not been the calendar God has been waiting on. He's been waiting on a people. I know I know it's not uh, so so eagerly embraced because some have tried hard to teach us that God is utterly sovereign and he is not hastened or delayed by our human responses or the lack thereof. Well, I wish, dear sir, that you would tell that one to Moses. You tell Moses, convince him that it was always God's will to have Israel trip and traipse and trudge for 40 long years after that mighty exodus deliverance in the hot, burning, deadly sands of that wilderness. You tell Moses, God always really wanted it this way. He always wanted it. It wasn't His plan then, and it is not His plan now. Mark it in your heart. Mark it in your brain. Jesus is ready to return to this planet now. But because we aren't, In mercy, He doesn't. Let's go back to that quiz. Now you can answer the questions. Let's take a look at those five questions again. True or false? It was God's will for Israel to wander 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. What's the answer? False. Let's go to number two. The reason Israel wandered for 40 years was because of their unbelief, backsliding, and apostasy. What's the answer? True Let's go to number three. It has been God's will for spiritual Israel to wander the last century and a half, thus delaying their entrance into the heavenly promised land. False. Number four. The reason spiritual Israel has wandered for the last century and a half is because of their unbelief, backsliding, and apostasy. What do you think the answer to that one is? Number five. In both cases, God had to wait for a new generation before leading them into the promised land. Will we be that generation? Can we be? Of course, of course. The question is, will we be? Huh? Will we be? Open your Bible, please. In the New Testament. The book called the Acts of the Apostles. We shared a couple of weeks ago that really that's a misnomer. It ought to be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, just yesterday I finished reading it through a chapter day through the first few uh, days of this 2000 A.D. New Year. Counted, circled every time the Holy Spirit or Spirit appeared, went through and counted them this morning. Fifty-two times. It ought to be called the Acts, not of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I want to go to chapter 5 with you, please. There's a wonderful story there. Acts chapter 5. And I'll be in the New Revised Standard Version. Just a, just a little context, please, for the story. The apostles are under arrest. That's, what, that's, that's where we come on them. The disciples. Eleven plus another one was elected, so they're still twelve. They are under arrest. In fact, last night they were hauled off to jail because of all this Jesus talk that they have been spreading All over Jerusalem. So they've been thrown in the clink. But in the middle of the night, the apostles, twelve, they wake up. They cannot believe their eyes because standing in front of them is this shining angelic being who apparently has been able to tiptoe past all the sentries, all the guards, and he left the doors open as he came in. And he has very implicit, explicit instructions. They are simple. Gentlemen, you are to march straight out of this jail first thing tomorrow morning. You go back into that temple, and I want you to preach your hearts out again about this same risen and returning Messiah, Jesus Christ. They are startled, they are dumbfounded. I mean, if an angel wakes you up and says, get out of here, are you going to just stay there? You're going to leave. And they follow him out And in obedience to the angel the next morning, back in the heart of the temple. They're preaching and they get re-arrested. Now, the story. Acts chapter 5, we'll pick it up in uh, verse 27. When they, that's the guards, had brought them, those of the twelve who went back into the temple and were preaching the next morning. When When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, hey guys, come on. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. I want to tell you something. Once you meet Jesus Christ and He radically changes your life, you cannot sit on it. You will eventually have to stand up and say something where you work, something where you go to school, something where you live. You just can't sit on it. Now, we gave you those orders, yet you have... Are determined, what is it, the end of verse 28? You are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Alright, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered. I love this. We must obey whom? We, we must obey God rather, my translation puts it, rather than any human authority. I love this line. Let me put it up on the screen for you. May I think you can jot it down quick enough. The Protestant German princes, back in the Diet of Spires, back in 1529, they made this forceful statement. Look at it here on the screen. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. You like that? In matters of conscience, don't you be consulting everybody else. If you got your conscience saying one thing, you listen to that conscience. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. And then, to match it, this is from... the. The little book, Acts of the Apostles. This is page 69. A thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside for a thus saith the church or a thus saith the state. Telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, when your conscience begins to start flashing red, you know exactly what that's like. When that conscience begins to start flashing red, more often than not, it is the Holy Spirit warning you away from something deadly. I promise you, He will never warn you away from something that is good for you. Only if it will eventually kill you does that, fl- does that red light begin to flash. You better pay attention to that red light. Now, in your case, it may not be a red light. It may just be the beep, 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 beep. When you're low on power... And the whole system is going to shut down. And you hear that beep. Pay attention. I'm telling you what, no matter what the majority is doing tonight, you must obey the Spirit. You know what? In fact, it only takes one young man, one man, to stand up in that group and say, I'm not, I am not. I want out. Just one woman. One woman to say no. We have to obey God rather than any human authority. Now, well, let's pick it up. Verse, verse uh, 30. Peter's still speaking here. We ought to obey God rather than any human authority. Verse 30. And the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging Him on a tree. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader or prince and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And now here comes the punchline. Here's where we were going. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Did you catch that line? The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Can you believe that, ladies and gentlemen? Apparently, the gift of the Holy Spirit is clearly predicated on our obedience, on our behavior. Now, I realize some people say, hey, wait a minute, come on, there's no behavior in this. Behavior does not enter into the equation. Oh, no, my friend, it absolutely does. The Holy Spirit is given to those who obey Him. That is very much behavioral. Some people think, well, that's just the Old Testament, legalistic. Nope, nope, here it is, right here in the heart of the New Testament. In fact, I want to remind you, on the eve of His own death, When Jesus first utters the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he really—it it is the profound uttering there in the upper room. One breath before He makes the promise of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus says. First, let's go to John 14, 16. This is the breath of the Holy Spirit. And I will ask, He says there in the upper room, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate. I love Peterson's translation that we noted a couple weeks ago. I'll give you another friend. I'm going to send another friend to be with you forever. But just before those words are breathed, the previous verse, verse 15, is stated, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. You cannot separate the Holy Spirit from obedience. Peter is absolutely right. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. That is not only the New Testament. That is the clarion teaching of both Testaments. I want you to go back to the Old Testament. Speaking of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Let's find Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is at the end. The 40 years are over. God took 40 years for an entire generation to die off so a new generation could go into the promised land. Moses is supposed to be going into the promised land, but he too is disobeyed. In a moment of passion, he has fallen as leader and God is apparently so concerned about right and wrong that He will not let that leader go into the holy Kingdom. He can't. And so Moses is taking one last moment with his grown-up congregation of young adults and he's pouring his heart out. That's the whole book. It's given in one setting. But let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Notice the linkage here between obedience and the Holy Spirit. This is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. Moses is speaking on God's behalf. Verse 13, If you will only heed His, God's, every command that I am commanding you today, Loving the Lord God and serving Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, and you will gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Mark it down, ladies and gentlemen. It is, you cannot miss it. God intentionally le- links the outpouring of His early autumn rain and the later or latter spring rain. He links it to obedience. Essentially, God is saying, obey my commandments and I will pour out my rain on you. No obedience, no rain. No obedience, no rain. What is he, he, some kind of mean ogre? Somebody we don't want to be friends with? Not at all. But he's saying, listen, am I Lord? Am I God in your community of faith? If I'm Lord, let's walk together. No choice? Okay, you're on your own. Out of verse 13, go, if you will only heed His every commandment that I am commanding you today, loving the Lord your God and serving Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then, verse 14, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later or the latter rain. If you will only heed the commandments. What commandments is He talking about? Oh, come on, just six chapters earlier, He recited. And we won't bother going back uh, six chapters, but He recited the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Hey, look, what are the Ten Commandments? Commandment number one. Let's just run through them without no, nobody looking. Let's just let's just review the ten commandments. What are they? Commandment number one: You shall have what? No other gods before me. Commandment number two: You shall not make any graven an image. Commandment number three: You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Commandment number four: One of the two that does not begin with you shall not. It begins with the word remember. Remember what? Remember the Sabbath day <clears throat> to keep it holy. Five is the other commandment that doesn't begin with you shall not, and it is honor your father and your mother. Commandment 6, you shall not murder, as newer translations put it. Commandment 8, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment 9, you shall not steal. Commandment No, no, commandment 8, you shall not steal. Commandment 9, you shall not lie. And commandment 10, you shall not covet. Mark it carefully and mark it well. There will be no genuine revival or divine outpouring upon a community of faith Or a movement of Christianity that in the end willfully rejects any one of God's Decalogue. Peter is clear. Jesus is clear. Moses and God are clear. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes only to those who obey God. And the problem is when you and I hear that as Sabbatarians, you say, Wow, I got it. I got all ten. Just like the rich young ruler, we're convinced that we have the Decalogue down pat. We do not. Because the very heart of the Decalogue is summed up in the 11th commandment. And I remind you, before his death in that same upper room, Jesus said, I want to give you a new commandment that sums up all the others. By this will the world know you are my people if you have what? If you have love one for another. I want to tell you, where racism exists, there can be no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely not. There'll be no rain if we do not obey the 11th commandment. Where sexism ex- exists, there can be no outpouring. Of the Holy Spirit. If you do not love one another, if the world cannot see radical, transforming love in the midst of this little community of faith, I'm telling you what—you're going to wander forty more years, no rain, unless you obey my command. See, a lot of us say, "Well, we got the fourth commandment down." Heh. Don't forget the eleventh. No, no obedience to love, no outpouring of. from above. Period. Because how does how did Peter put it? Let's put it back on the screen. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who what? Who obey Him. I want to ask you a personal question. Don't raise your hand. Are you obeying God? Are you obeying God? Am I obeying God? Are we obeying God? There's a little verse tucked in right behind uh, verse 14. It's called verse 16. I'd like you to read verse 16. Notice what God goes on to say. Take care, or you will be seduced into turning away, serving other gods, and worshiping them. Do you suppose that's it, my friends? Is that it? Ladies and gentlemen, is that why there is no rain? Could it be that we have been worshiping the wrong gods all this time? We didn't know it's been the wrong god we were worshiping. Reminds me of that ad that appeared in the classified section of a U.S. newspaper. For sale. 19-inch television. Used washing machine. Golf clubs. And other household gods. Just a typographical error can turn goods into gods. My friends, could it be that we find it extremely easy To change our goods into God's. Is academic success good? I asked this university congregation. We said, but of course, of course. Academic success is good. But could we change that good into a God? Could we? How about academic reputation? I mean, you know, the pressure's on now. They're going to give you a little more pay, but you got to, it's now commensurate to the kind of output you have, and so everybody is going to be scrambling to make sure they get noticed and published and all the rest. Could is academic reputation good? Is it good to have a good reputation? Of course. But can we take something that is good and transform it into a god? Can we? Of course we can. Let me ask you this: Is a beautiful face and an attractive visage is that good? Come on, fellas, is that good or what? Yeah, it's good. But can you take something that is good and turn it into a God through vanity? Hey, is sexual pleasure good? Did God, like our old friend Charles Wichby put it, did God invent sex, didn't He? Is sexual pleasure good? But can we take that which is good and transform it into that which is God? A God that can come to you through the Internet night after night after night after night. And nobody knows but you and the big G God. Nobody but you and He. Can you take what is good and make it a God? How about accumulated wealth? Is that good? Oh boy, it must be. God gave it. But can you take what is good and make it a God? How about appetite? The palate of our tongue that longs for that little sweet whatever it is that our bodies crave for. Can you take what is good and make it a God? Is that why there has been the dearth of rain in this community? Could it be that as a people we have no rain today? Because we have not obeyed today. We have been seduced into worshiping at the pantheon of other gods. Could it be that as a church, we have needlessly gone generation after generation without the latter and final outpouring of the Holy Spirit because we are unable and are unwilling yet to confront our own desperate spiritual schizophrenia? We are still desperately trying to straddle the line, sit on the fence between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. I mean, we say, Jesus, you are wrong. You are dead wrong. What do you mean? No man can serve two masters. We can. We have found through creative compromise and persistent accommodation that we can serve both kingdoms simultaneously. Told you. Because what they read, we read. What they watch, we watch. We watch. What they sing, we sing. What they dance, we dance. What they drink, we drink. What they eat, we eat. What they wear, we wear. What they embrace, we embrace. What they learn, we learn. What they teach, we teach. What they want, we want. What they buy, we buy. What they believe, we believe. Could it be? that those who sigh and groan over such hemorrhaging compromise are becoming fewer and fewer. Could it be? Could this be the reason why we no longer want to be bothered with this notion that Jesus could have returned 10, 15, 100 years ago? Oh, come on! God has set the date. Don't give me that. Could it be we don't want to deal with the notion that His people have delayed that choice? God has obviously made. Could it be that until there is repentance, there will never, ever be rain? I want to read to you an email I received this last week from one of our student leaders on campus responding to last Sabbath's sermon. Amen, Pastor Dwight, amen. I appreciated the good news on Sabbath. And I'm praying that God teaches me to weep and mourn over the sin that plagues my life and the lives of those around us. Pastor Dwight, on our our, uh, leadership team, we've been pondering an idea and praying about it, and I thought I would mention it to you. It seems very biblical that repentance always precedes revival. And even in that quotation you shared the other day, repentance, confession, humility, and prayer were mentioned as requirements for us to experience the power of the Holy Spirit as never before. Well, what we were wondering is, How to do that on a larger scale? It just seems that when godly leaders in the Old Testament realized that the people had wandered away from the Lord, they proclaimed a day of prayer and fasting to confess their faults and come in repentance before the Lord. It seems that this was the essence of the Day of Atonement as well. And I understand that we are living in the Day of Judgment. Well, we were wondering, what would be wrong with putting everything else aside and proclaiming a day of repentance For us to come before God, confessing our worldliness and forsaking our rebellious ways. Asking Him to change our hearts into loving disciples so that He can give us the Spirit without measure as He did to Jesus. I thought I would mention the idea to you and see what you thought. God bless you as He continues to help all of us see how high and deep and broad and long is His love for us that passes all understanding, grace and peace and the knowledge of our Lord. The student leader typed his name and then hit send and I got it. Until there is repentance, will there ever be rain? Until there is corporate repentance, will there ever be corporate revival? I meet in a, in a prayer group every uh, Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock. been meeting since last fall together. And I took this email to the, to the prayer group. Let them read it. What do you think? We were, we were reminded of that passage in Joel chapter 2. We're not going to look it up. Where Joel says, you know, blow the horns. Come on, guys, blow the horns. Call an assembly. Bring the bride and the groom and the kids and the aged. And let the priests weep between the porch and the altar, begging God to spare the heritage of His people. And not let us become a mockery in this world going down. We read Joel 2 and wondered, I mean, does God really want that? Of us? I'd like to end with Peter's words back in Acts chapter 5. Would you go back there one last moment, please? We're in Deuteronomy. We'll go back to where we began. Acts chapter 5. What hope is there for repentance and revival? I want to tell you, there's all the hope in the world. I love this. We hurried over the words a moment ago, but we go back to them now in closing. Acts chapter 5. Peter is speaking in Verse 30. And the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. Verse 31. And God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior, that He might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it in your Bible. Repentance, even repentance, is a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We can't we can't call a convocation here and somehow engender enough repentance to get God to notice us. That is foolishness and crazy. Repentance itself is a gift from the Lord of Calvary. That blood splattered Roman tree is the only place you and I can go for this pantheon within to be eradicated and thrown out. It has to come. It has to come at the foot of this cross. We can't do it ourselves, but He has promised to do it for us. I want to ask you, what would happen? What would happen if, like the community of faith of old, we too set aside a day for earnest prayer and repentance? I mean, what if we set aside a day in which we could privately confess our sins to God and and a day in which we could personally make the choice to eradicate from our spirits and our souls within those, those gods and goddesses that have held us back. What if we set aside a day all across this community and all across this campus? A day for us to go to someone else. Because there may be a man, there may be a woman, there may be someone who needs to hear from me the two words... I'm sorry. What if we just knew that, hey, the day is going to come and we're going to, on this day, clear the decks and ask repentance of those who have been waiting to hear from us. In fact, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, look, if you're going to worship and you realize your brother has ought, he has something against you, don't wait for your brother to come to you. Don't wait for the sister to come to you. You go to her and you say, I perceive there's a wall between us and I want to take that wall down. Is there anything I have done? What if we had a day where we just kind of cleared the deck spiritually? Oh, look at folks. We can't quit going to school. We can't quit working. We can't quit living. But if we had a day where we all said, okay, that day will be the day I walk across campus. I go downstairs to that office. I pick up the phone. That day will be the day. What would happen if God called for a day of prayer and repentance? Would we take advantage of such a day? Would you? on the third floor of the Ad building, or the basement of Nethery Hall, or the second floor of the dormitory, or the first floor of your own home, in the offices of Pioneer, or in the classrooms of Ruth Murdoch, would we, if he called for a day, would we come? Well, all I know is that this Wednesday... I'd like to invite those of you who wish to, if you wish to, to join me in a day of special prayer and repentance. We've got to go on with all of our schedules, but what if we carve some extra time into our already busy lives? What if we carve some quiet corners and we got intense? You know, with, with Jesus. He said, oh Jesus, if there is anything in my life that is holding back the rain, would you point it out to me? I'll take it out if you point it out. A day where we could make that trip, make that expression. You know what? The the prayer bells ring every day at noon. But what if this Wednesday, when those prayer bells above this church began to ring, we say, hey, let's go and come to this place. In fact, the church is going to be open all this week, every day, every hour. But if on Wednesday, you wish to come here at noon or sometime during the day, I'd like to invite you to come. You're not doing this for anybody but yourself. You and Jesus. But a day where you go for broke. Just just open your heart up in fullness to this same Christ. And then, you know, staff will be here Wednesday uh, noon, but, you know, seven o'clock, if we came back here to the house of prayer for a moment of focused and corporate prayer in humility, Coming before God. Would that be bad? I'd like to invite you to, to make Wednesday coming up. A day of that kind of praying. This much I know. Jesus wants to come to us. He has been longing to come for over a hundred years. But that's the holy catch 22. Let's put it on the screen. See, the fact is, He can't come to us until we come To him. But we can't come to him until he comes to us. Which is why it is imperative that the second coming of the Holy Spirit precede the second coming of Jesus. He waits to come to us. Why would we wait any longer to come to him? I want to pray with you. I'd like to invite you to pray the prayer with me. It's a beautiful prayer here in our hymnal. Short little hymn. Oh, what a prayer. seems the right prayer that we would pray today. 315 in the hymnal. Oh, for a closer walk with God. A calm and heavenly frame. A light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. And look at that second stanza. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, please. Take that idol that we have just seen within our minds. Please know that we do not wish to keep it, but we hardly, it seems, have the power to let it go anymore. Father, please, we need you to take it. We don't have the strength, we don't have the power, but the Spirit does. And so, oh, mighty God, would you please do whatever it takes in the life of this community and do whatever it takes within our own private hearts so that there shall be only one God we worship and one Lord. We obey. We need the rain. Please. In the name of the Father. And the Son. And the Holy Spirit. Amen.